Say, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and as always, I'm with my great co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. Happy to be back. And Alex Lawson. Hi, everyone. Good to have you back, Bill. You know, nice to have a full team. I am back, and uh, you know, you you guys are back, but what is not back is... uh, all of Alex's organs. Uh, he did. <laughs> he did have one removed uh, in the interim, in between the taping of last week's episode and this week. So I just want to commend him. Oh, I mean, I mean, not just in the interim. I mean, I want people to know when you listen to last week's episodes. Of course, Amber and I talking about some ballot measures and some other things. We'll be talking about the election again this episode. When you go back, go back and listen to that. A couple of minutes of that, and bear in mind that not. Mm, Seven hours after recording wrapped, I was on the operating table at New York Methodist Hospital in Brooklyn, New York, getting my appendix out. Shaved, uh, shaved up and cut up. You know, I mean, this is just Alex basically being like, I want you all to know, I will not let the podcast down. You this was like the, this was the, give you an episode. This was the bloody sock game for Alex. He I was, was out say, there. Many people are saying bloody sock game. Many people are saying Michael Jordan flu game. Uh, Kirk yeah. Gibson. Kirk Gibson and Kirk Gibson. Uh, with in, the, I mean, I listened to the episode. You knocked one out of the park. Yeah, I. Uh, you, it's an audio medium, so you couldn't see when we were rounding into the main segment. I, I, I did a double fist pump, like when I when he rounded second base. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, yeah, well, so that happened, uh, and I'm feeling good. Uh, I am light one appendix, and I'm back in the saddle. I miss no time. Uh, so I'm not going to assess my own legacy as a podcaster that's not for me to do i'll leave that to the podcast history writers but i just wanted it uh as a matter of record yeah i mean i think we can give you some props for it alex we can go ahead and and pin down that history of you as a podcast we can make the whole show this if we want i mean (laughs) the the other great feats of podcasting strength or whatever but yeah uh Uh, so happy to be back and healthy we are going to transition from you talking about your own uh brush with uh healthcare and our medical system straight into Yes, but we should. But we should mention, uh, you know, uh, stick around for for the our, our main segment that we're going to have later in the show. We're going to sort of set the table, explain all of the various, somewhat questionable litigation that has followed after the uh, after the election. Um, we're going to try. I want to underpromise and overdeliver in that regard. <laughs> There's a lot going on, and we're going to do our best. Like what, like you say. To, to sort it out. But like you say, Amber, uh, there was some high court action this week and it involved uh, the nation's uh, bedrock uh, health care law. Yeah. So I, I mean, we talked about this on our show and the media talked about it just uh, in general. But back when Amy Coney Barrett was first nominated to join the Supreme Court and then throughout her confirmation hearings, one issue came up over and over again. And that was whether or not she would help form a conservative majority on the court that would kill the Affordable Care Act. Right. And if you guys think back to only a few weeks ago when all of this was playing out, the concern was pretty well founded because Barrett had previously criticized rulings that had saved Obamacare. And there was a case that was pending on the horizon. Well, now we've gotten to the week where oral arguments have been heard in that case. And so today I wanted to check in on those arguments, sort of get everybody up to speed on what happened. And sometimes we say we don't want to do this, but here I actually do want to dive right into some pro- prognosticating about <laughs> I was say, what gonna we be think a lot the outcome might be. <laughs> yes. Um, so this is not the first time that the justices have heard arguments about the ACA. Um, so what 
I think it would be helpful, I think, to differentiate the the questions that have been settled before and the questions that are before them now. Yeah. So this time around, Republican officials say the mandate in the Affordable Care Act requiring insurance became unconstitutional after Congress back in 2017 eliminated Mm -hmm. the penalty for failing to obtain that health insurance. Yeah. This all hinges on whether or not it could be considered a tax, and they say that once that wasn't mandated anymore, it's not a tax, and therefore it's unconstitutional. Which was, and that and, yes. and that was the that was the centerpiece of mm-hmm. the Alex was mentioning the earlier cases, the 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 big 2012 ruling, the really biggest ruling here, right. um, found that it was a tax, and that that was you know that Congress had that power, and so it's interesting that now that's coming up here in in a very different context. Yeah, and so Republicans in the current line of suits we're talking about now, they went a step further by saying that the main mandate was a crucial part of the law. So if that's gone and and is unconstitutional, is not a tax, then the whole law has to fail, the entire thing. Lower courts up to now have mostly agreed with the Republican arguments. And so now we've landed in the Supreme Court. So what are... So what's sort of the range of outcomes here? I know it's not always one way or the other. What what different things might we see from this case? Yeah, I think it helps frame the rest of our conversation and sort of our judging of how the uh, justices tackled this in the oral arguments to just sort of outline the three big options they have in resolving this case. The first one is that the court could say that the Republican plaintiffs don't have standing for this. In which case, mm. they just toss the suit. So that's love a procedural a good, one. Love a good standing ruling whenever we get those. Yeah. yeah. The second one is sort of a middle ground ruling where they could say the individual mandate after 2017 is severable from the rest of the Affordable Care Act and just toss that one part. The third option is the far more extreme one, the one that has had a lot of Democrats really worried, and that's that the high court could affirm the district court's ruling that the individual that the individual mandate is so central to the ACA that if it goes down, the whole law is going to go down with it. So that would toss everything. Mm -hmm. Um, Judging from oral arguments, it appears that option three, the sort of more nuclear, everything is, is scraped off the board. That is appearing quite unlikely at this point, even though, as predicted, Judge Barrett asked some really tough questions and it seems like she may be in the camp to inclined to strike down the law. But we had some interesting things happen in oral arguments. Comments from two other justices, Kavanaugh and Roberts, make it seem like the court won't go that far. Well, yeah, it's it's, it's always interesting to game out the, the the different paths that they could walk. But let's stop talking about it in the abstract. We 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 we, we had arguments this week. What you know? What were these comments? Uh, what what were the comments that everybody was talking about? And like uh, and and is going to lead to some tea re- uh, tea leaf reading from us. Yeah, so for, to, for starters, it's maybe not super surprising to anyone that's been following along with all of the back and forth and the various cases over the years with Obamacare that Roberts is inclined to uphold the ACA. I mean, he's done it in previous rulings. Mm-hmm. And so at one point, he suggested that the Republicans might not have standing here. Um, now that the penalty, the mandate is penalty free. Basically, there's no harm to any of the people bringing this case anymore. There's no money involved anymore. Um, So that's one area that he explored a bit. And this same thread was largely picked up by Justice Elena Kagan, who said this. I mean, the United States is usually pretty stingy about standing law. So it did surprise me in much the way that it surprised the Chief Justice that you're coming in here with a theory which to my mind threatens to kind of explode standing doctrine. 
So what you hear her saying there is that um, if they do have standing, uh, she refers to it as it could explode standing doctrine, which means mm-hmm. um, it seems like that may gain some uh, some other supporters on the bench because none none of the Supreme Court justices like anything that will blow up an area of the law and create a lot of, of new cases that they've never seen before. Okay, so th- there's a procedural out. We know that they sometimes like those in those sort of anticlimactic endings here. But uh, say they do rule on the merits of this case. Um, w- was there a sense from what the justices said as to how that kind of ruling might go? Yeah, we had some some real clear direction from some justices on that point, too, if they do get to the actual merits here. Several conservative justices justices seem open to the idea that the individual mandate is unconstitutional now that Congress has nixed that tax penalty associated with failing to purchase health insurance. But Roberts and Kavanaugh in particular were very skeptical of the idea that that means the rest of the law should all be tossed out with it. Mm -hmm. Um, Roberts, in fact, kind of seemed annoyed. I mean, he seemed a little peeved that Republicans were trying to use the courts to overturn this law when they couldn't get a repeal done in a clean legislative way. So Roberts had to say this when he was addressing those Republicans. Uh, General Hawkins, on the severance question, I I think it's hard for you to argue that Congress um, intended the entire act to fall if the mandate were struck down uh, when the same Congress that lowered the penalty to zero uh, did not even try to repeal the rest of the act. Uh, I think, uh, frankly, that they wanted the court to do that, uh, but that's not our job. Yeah, some pretty clear words there. That's not our job. Yeah, and, and it, it's it's interesting. I mean, the, the way he's saying, like, you you chose to do certain things as a legislative body and weren't able to do others, and we don't right. fill the gap there. It's I mean, that's that that that's pretty that's in keeping with the way he has approached questions like that before. So it does make sense. Yeah, and. Um, in this same sort of vein of considering severability, I think the perhaps the more surprising remarks came from Kavanaugh. He could not have been more clear on how he feels about this. I tend to agree with you. This is a very straightforward case for severability under our precedents, meaning that we would excise the mandate and leave the rest of the act in place, uh, reading our severability precedents. I love love when we start getting into the issue of severability. I feel like it's a good like metal band album name. <laughs> it, it is. I mean, I think it's so interesting, though, that people had wondered how Kavanaugh would view this. Um, he has been a proponent of severability in some previous cases where similar issues have come up. Um, but I don't think anybody fully expected him just to say, hey, this is really clear. This is what this should be. So, yeah. What that leaves us with, um, if you're doing the math, Kavanaugh and Roberts seem like if they get to the merits, they would go with this uh, it is severable approach. And mm-hmm. obviously, the three um, liberal justices that remain on the court would agree with that. So that's where you get a five court majority to sever this, but keep the rest of the ACA intact. So that's sort of where we stand now. We'll see if they go down the road of deciding that there's no standing or we could see this middle road with severability, but it looks like the ACA will survive and we won't go the most extreme route.
the main part of the show today, we are going to get into all sorts of things that have happened post-election. We're going to run down some of the big Trump lawsuits and where those stand. We're also going to pivot a little bit after that and talk about some of the blowback that's happened for certain law firms that have been involved in these suits and other defense of Trump. So um, a lot to unpack here. And I know you guys each sort of took a piece of it so that we can break it down and make it as easy to follow as we can. Yeah, we should uh, we should institute a drinking game for every time we say there's a lot going on because there is certainly (laughs) a lot going on right now. Um, Let's like you say, let's I think it's there's a lot of lawsuits being filed and I think it would be good to just kind of situate the people as to what the general status of these things are. It's frankly a boom time for election lawsuits. Election law can be a little bit dry and some would say boring. Um, but a lot of this stuff isn't even really getting to the meat of election law yet. We're somewhere in the neighborhood of like 20 cases that have been filed across various state and federal courts by either the Trump campaign or its supporters within the state Republican parties, all of which basically fit under the umbrella of trying to disqualify some amount of ballots that have been cast in crucial swing states in the hopes of basically moving the pendulum back to Trump as he as as Biden has been has had the election called by all major media organizations. So at a baseline, the one thing if if you take nothing else away from this segment, the thing to know about these lawsuits is that they have mostly failed. Um, And to the extent that they have succeeded, they have done so on such a narrow basis that it seems that it's unlikely to change the result of any race uh, in these in these very uh, in these contested states. So just to run us down, probably the most active uh, state has been Pennsylvania uh, in terms of there's there's been, I think, somewhere like a dozen suits filed in Pennsylvania alone challenging some uh, portion of the electoral process there. It's kind of a flashpoint. And- yeah, and I think that makes a lot of sense because even pre-election, when people were talking about what might be one of the most hotly contested states, a solid guess was always Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, there's been a dynamic here that's played out across much of the country, which is that on the night of the election, most of the in-person ballots were being cast for Trump and most of the mail-in ballots were being cast for Biden and they were counted later. And the lag in the counting of those two tranches of votes has led to general allegations that something tricky and something mischievous is afoot. And those those claims have mostly not gained traction in court at all. So last week, we touched briefly on a case where a state judge ruled that Republican observers could... Uh, physically stand closer to where the ballots were being tabulated. The, so the idea was just like they, they literally filed a suit that said we want to stand however many feet closer to observe the counting. Uh, and they and they they won that case. But again, that's kind of just like a nominal victory that has nothing to do with the validity of the ballots being cast. Um the most success that Republicans have had in Pennsylvania is convincing courts to at least allow mail-in ballots to be separated from in-person ballots while they are counted and not mixed in in case they're invalidated later. The Supreme Court actually got um, involved in this on Friday. Justice Samuel uh, Samuel Alito backed uh, the idea of just like, okay, there's some pending litigation about the about the validity of mail-in ballots and whether they came too late or anything like that. Right, it's the it's the it's the case about the window in which you can accept these. Yes, it was extended for 3 days post election. They had to be postmarked with 3 days after the election 
there's litigate there's underlying litigation about whether that deadline is met and whether it was proper and all of that. And Alito said, okay, I'm going to allow the state to keep those ballots in sort of separate silos, but he did reject the GOP's request to just stop counting altogether. Um, there was a fresh suit filed uh, in Pennsylvania on Monday, basically saying that the Commonwealth's uh, two-tiered system for evaluating in-person and mail-in ballots uh, violates the Equal Protection Clause. Now, that is that was just filed on Monday. I, I think there was a hearing today or sometime this week. It's early days. But there are estimates that that case, even if it were to gain traction, and there's no sense that that's happened yet, could affect somewhere around 10,000 votes, um, which is a lot of votes, obviously. It's a big number, but it's nowhere close. Uh, Biden leads by about 50,000 votes in Pennsylvania. So even if you had a court take a very extreme, it would be very extreme for them to say, all may all these mail-in votes that that arrived late are 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 bunk and they have to be thrown out. It would even if that were to happen, it's obviously unlikely to affect the material result of the election in Pennsylvania. Yeah, so. I think that's probably going to be a theme of a lot of what you're sharing with us today, Alex. That um, there are many challenges, but there doesn't seem to be anything really that um, calls into question the sheer volume of votes that would need to be overturned to change the outcome of the election. Yeah. Um, so, like I say, in Pennsylvania, they've had sort of what we would call nominal success in these lawsuits, though in a narrow way. Uh, moving to Michigan, I think you have a much more typical fact pattern for the, for how the rest of these uh, election lawsuits are playing out. And that is state officials, or, or rather Republican Party officials... Alleging widespread fraud or some other kind of conspiracy to fudge votes, which is then backed by just the slimmest of anecdotal evidence or no evidence at all. So there's been a bunch of suits filed in Michigan about that include affidavits from poll watchers saying that they saw the double counting of ballots. They saw signs of political bias like (laughs) this is this is serious poll workers rolling their eyes when they opened ballots with votes for Trump. Uh, they they saw uh, again these affidavits say uh, they they saw poll workers and Democratic observers wearing like Black Lives Matter masks, implying that they were opposed uh, that, that that they opposed Trump, and that this this is de facto evidence of some grand voting conspiracy. Every case that's alleged some version of this conspiracy has been thrown out. Uh, Michigan Judge Timothy Kenny kind of nicely summed up the difference between making allegations and providing evidence. He said in tossing one of these suits, quote, this court finds that while there are assertions made by the plaintiffs, there is no evidence in support of those assertions. So we're we're getting to a very heady legal concept known as evidence, uh, which is (laughs) which is the uh, the the fatal flaw for a lot of these suits so far. Well, if we're talking about theories that are not exactly supported by evidence. I think we would be remiss if we did not hit on Sharpie Gate. Yeah, I mean, we gotta uh, get into Sharpie Gate. Uh, you, so. know, you always, when you're in the media, you toe the line between deciding what is newsworthy and not wanting to breathe sort of too much life into something that's a little bit right. fanciful. But this was a suit that was filed. Uh, this began as sort of a social media fueled conspiracy that eventually spilled into Arizona court. Uh, the campaign had alleged that. Some voters had had their ballots, uh, some voters in Arizona had had their ballots incorrectly rejected because they were made to fill them out with Sharpies, which uh, could not be read by the machines. Um, So that was the basis. That became the basis of a lawsuit. 
State officials straight up said this did not happen. Like the Sharpies didn't even exist in a meaningful way. Cases eventually dropped. Um, So another suit has been filed alleging that Maricopa County uh, incorrectly rejected votes um, and overrode voting machine errors. That that suit, um, which the Secretary of State has basically said is a sort of more official reframing of the Sharpie Gate argument that there's some kind of technical nefariousness at play. That suit says there's thousands of in-person ballots that were improperly disqualified um, because the machine incorrectly rejected them or things like that. Mm-hmm. So they say thousands of votes are at stake. Attorneys for the state say it's much smaller, uh, that it's about 180 votes or so that may have been subject to some kind of quirk in the in the machines. Um, so there you have, an, again, another example of sort of falling in the gap of not quite having the evidence that backs up these pretty serious claims or to the extent you do, it's such a small number that one wonders what is the purpose of pursuing uh, that litigation. Um, in Georgia, um, there was a campaign. The Trump campaign filed a suit looking to looking to dis- looking to disqualify fifty three ballots from Chatham County. The campaign alleges that they arrived late after the seven p.m. election day deadline, but got mixed in with on time ballots. Um, County officials testified that all three ballots had been received on time. Here again, they've really been tripped up by this by this uh, this evidence question. You need evidence when you make allegations like this. The judge tossed the case and very simply stated, quote, the court finds that there is no evidence that the ballots referenced in the petition were received after 7 p.m. on Election Day, thereby making those ballots invalid. Um, Pretty so, straightforward. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you can, you, you know, you can file a suit saying that this thing happened, but if you don't give me evidence, then I uh, I can't really help you. And that's basically what the judge is saying, that 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 case has been tossed. Um, the, this right now really helps sort of unpack some of these cases, because I, I think um, me and many of our listeners probably have heard that there's lots of cases making their way through the court and what could possibly happen with them. But when you start to dig into these um, we're talking small numbers. We're talking, like you said, many of them, they can't back up with facts, so they get tossed really early. Um, it mm-hmm. doesn't seem like much of this is going to take hold to do anything that really changes much. Uh, in Nevada, uh, that's we'll, we'll finish in Nevada, which was another sort of battleground state that is that is um, uh, leaning uh, or, or has, has been called for Biden by several outlets here. This one is kind of interesting. This this doesn't um, have to do with the casting of ballots specifically, but there was a there was a, a request by Republican officials to stop the use of uh, in Nevada. They were using automated signa- uh, signature verification machines um, in Clark County, which is like a Democratic stronghold in the state. And the lawsuit used the example of a Nevada voter who said she was turned away because um, state officials said or or election officials said that a mailed ballot had been cast with her signature and it was it was vetted out by this automated signature uh, uh, machine. Um, But election officials said that they went and actually talked to the woman who who was, you know, forming the basis of this lawsuit they had reviewed her ballot without a machine, deemed that the signature was hers. They offered her a chance to file an affidavit, cast a provisional ballot like you can always do if there, if you think that there's something wrong or you think you've been improperly turned away. Uh, and she refused. Um, so that's just sort of an open and shut, um, you know, administration of that. That that right. case was rejected. They're still you. They 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 are allowed to use the the, the signature verification machines. And all of that. So it kind of falls away um, when 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 judges have been giving just kind of a modicum of scrutiny here. 
Well, as, as Amber mentioned, uh, I think going through these was helpful because you sort of get a sense for uh you know the the difference between some of the some of the rhetoric you've heard out there and yeah, some of the more um, yeah. the more hyperbolic uh you know claims many of them from the president about fraud and all these other things and then you really dig into the cases and it's procedural questions where you know i know that you've seen a, a few of these hearings have happened and the judges really try to try to uh, you know, hammer down saying, are you alleging actual fraud or actual conspiracies? And mm-hmm. these attorneys have repeatedly had to say, no, we're not. Yeah, we're not. Yeah. And, that, yeah, um, yeah, those have been filtering out that like even the, the attorneys who file the nominal fraud suits when pressed say, well, don't have a lot of evidence of fraud on me, your honor. Uh, maybe we can get some later. Um, but like but like you say, we're there's a, there's a gulf between calling a press conference and saying that that we're getting cheated here in the election and then the rubber has to meet the road and you have to make a legal argument. And that has we've seen that mostly flounder in these uh, in these suits. Now, that doesn't mean they'll stop. Uh, I think I think I think we can say enough to say that they will that I, mean, I don't know if we'll say that they will likely keep coming. But uh, most notably this week, uh, Attorney General Bill Barr authorized federal prosecutors to to sort of go out, seek out, uh, investigate legitimate fraud claims within their jurisdictions before the votes are certified by the respective states. So, I mean, the the federal government has been somewhat mobilized on that front, and it's possible more cases grow out of that. But that's about where we stand. Like I say, there's th- th- there have been a lot of suits with very little uh, in the way of substantive findings of fraud. And that's there's really no other uh, there's really no other way to say it at this point. Well, let's dig in a little bit to what you were talking about, Bill, that all of these lawsuits come with lawyers who are doing the work and filing the suits. What do we know about some of the fallout that's happened for those folks? Like who's involved and what's going on with them? Yeah, I mean, I think a few a few big firms that are involved in these cases are really gearing up for perhaps damage control because, um, you know, uh, it's it's we're getting into the tricky territory. We've talked about it previously in the past of. When do you draw the line of of the the you know the the client is at fault for filing a case that perhaps they should not versus the lawyers themselves deserve some some level of criticism? Do you criticize them? Does that put a chill on sort of the idea that everyone is entitled to an attorney? It's 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 a tricky tricky question, but we've been seeing it play out this week in terms of some of the blowback for the firms that are working on these cases. Yeah, so I think it would be good. I mean, let's. Let's let's name names here. I mean, who are the who are the sort of uh, players that we need to know about who like who are sort of in the middle of these very, you know, somewhat controversial lawsuits. So the main name here is Jones Day, not a not a not an uncommon name on this show or for anyone who works in the legal industry. Right. Um, they're they're one of the, the biggest law firms in the country and one that has been very closely linked to to the Trump administration since day one, since before day one during the campaign. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, partner Don McGahn uh, served as outside counsel to the 2016 Trump campaign. He then left to serve as White House counsel, where he played a, a very big role in Trump's uh, fairly successful efforts to nominate many, many uh, judges yeah. to the federal bench. Um, Noel Francisco served as the solicitor general, Trump's first solicitor general. Um, both of those attorneys have since returned to the firm. Uh, since 2015, Jones Day has billed 
millions uh, in terms of representing the president, the campaign, uh, other Republicans. Since the start of 2019, FEC records show that the firm has billed uh, $4.6 million from Trump and various uh, you know, related groups. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so in terms of these cases, Jones yeah. Day is representing the Pennsylvania GOP in that case in Pennsylvania – um, that that it was actually filed before the election. It was yeah. seeking to challenge this window that had been extended for uh, receiving ballots after election day. Um, th- that was the case that that, as you mentioned, Alex, it re- it led to uh, Justice Alito's little sort of unusual ruling that said, you know, mm-hmm. you need to do this. I know I, many people sort of talked afterwards about how you know Pennsylvania was doing that to a certain extent. So it was this sort of strange little ruling, um, but. Uh, that case is is the case that Jones Day is working on. Um, the other big players here are Porter Wright, which is a uh, a midsize firm based in Ohio. Uh, the firm has filed multiple cases in Pennsylvania dealing with the election, including the one on Monday that Alex mentioned uh, that was alleging that that two track system of mm-hmm. of you know voting in in Pennsylvania that had disadvantaged Republicans. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other big one is Snell and Wilmer. Uh, it's a firm with about four hundred and fifty attorneys out on the West Coast in the Southwest. Uh, they represented the uh, Republican National Committee in one of the cases that had been filed in Maricopa County in Arizona. These are so high profile. Um, and as we've outlined in the talk so far, um, you know, they do ride that line between um, vindicating rights in a valid suit and maybe things that were not fully vetted and didn't have all the facts behind them. So has there been blowback so far? So both Jones Day and Porter Wright were sort of highlighted in this deep dive that the New York Times ran on Monday, um, uh, sort of talking about internal dissension that that both firms were basing were facing about their role in these cases. Um, According to the report, a, a group of Jones Day partners questioned if uh, the, the PA lawsuit had been filed with, you know, the the, the goal of eroding public trust rather than actually going after a, a, a making a good faith effort to deal with this with this thing that the lawsuit is alleging. Um, Porter Wright's work uh, inspired apparently one attorney to quit the firm in protest. Uh, apparently, a group of of associates also objected to the firm's involvement. They raised their objections during a meeting. Um, so fast forward a day to Tuesday, and um, you know that article started to have fallout. You had on Tuesday the um, the anti-Trump group, the Lincoln Project. Uh, mm-hmm. They launched a w- what was reported to be what they said was a five hundred thousand uh, dollar social media campaign targeting both Jones Day and Porter Wright. Um, the group accused the firms of, of quote, dangerous attacks on on democracy by sort of architecting these lawsuits and uh, encouraged employees to resign in protest from them. Uh, that's it also a real said, lawyer on lawyer crime there. The Lincoln Project, those guys are all conservative lawyers. That's that's just uh, they that's are. Like and the and they they took it a step further and and perhaps the most egregious uh thing for a law firm they they said that they were going to go after clients so they they were tweeting at various clients encouraging them to drop these law firms uh meanwhile snell and wilmer uh withdrew from the arizona case there was no indication from the filing or from anything publicly from the firm that it was you know to support the idea that it was linked to potential blowback but but you know these cases had just been filed, so it's it's not entirely typical for a firm to just pull out immediately from a case that they had just filed. 
I think there's so many interesting dynamics here um, because the Lincoln Project is essentially banking on the idea, at least in encouraging people to resign and protest, that these firms aren't monoliths. It's not like everyone working at Jones Day has the exact same viewpoint on all of these cases that are so political. Um, and that's true with all of the firms we're talking about. So it is a it's a tricky one to navigate when the firm gets into such public territory. Well, it's it's tricky, right? Because it's there's two sort of fundamental tenets of the American legal system that are basically directly in tension here. I mean, on the, on the one hand, everyone deserves a lawyer. We, you know, yep. every kid in in high school learns about John Adams representing the 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 British soldiers at the Boston Massacre. It's it, you know, lawyers have a duty to to represent their clients. The 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 whole system works better when everyone is represented. You get into really difficult territory when you start shaming the lawyers themselves for things that that you know for representing a particular client. I think we talked about this last year or maybe earlier this year when um, you know students at elite law firm at a, sorry students at elite law schools started calling for big firms to drop clients like oil companies based right. on you know their concerns for climate change. That raises really difficult questions of 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 what role the the attorney has versus what role the the perhaps controversial client has but you know on 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 the other hand uh lawyers are are ethically obligated to operate in in good faith to uh to go to court with claims that they believe to have some level of merit to to yeah. not advance to not knowingly advance frivolous or or baseless claims in court um if if as as most legal experts insist these cases have little chance of success and as alex detailed you know ad nauseum in the previous segment that that most of them lack evidence uh are are the lawyers you know are they are they crossing a line here are they going from simply representing a a perhaps uh you know deeply unpopular or controversial client to doing something wrong themselves by by enabling these cases it's it it goes without saying but the stakes mm-hmm. here could not be higher that we're we're not talking yeah. about you know a frivolous we're not talking about a patent troll lawsuit we're talking about something that is calling into question the basic function of a democracy so if if we're making those claims are you subject to an even heightened standard here so yeah. it's it's just raising all sorts of really tricky questions i mean these firms themselves uh particularly porter wright and jones day have both come out and 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 responded to some of this backlash right. uh you know jones day said that that some of this had been sort of murkied by the media coverage and that they were really just representing this one case the pennsylvania case that was filed over this window they're not seeking to overturn vote counts or whatever Porter yeah. Wright said, you know, we represent people on both sides of the aisle. We're going to keep doing that. So we will see if if the Lincoln campaign and all these other efforts to to pressure these groups has any kind of impact or whether it, it you know, it's it's going to be hard to know. But but perhaps one thing that this impacts is is their ability to to competitively recruit the the next crop yeah. of, of really elite law students. We'll see. But it's it's always super fascinating to talk about this line of where the you know the 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 attorney becomes responsible to a yeah. certain extent for what they're doing on the behalf of a client
Guys, I'm glad everybody was back with me today because, man, we covered a lot of ground in today's show. Sure did. Uh, yeah, it was it was a great show. And now that we're done, I would I would advise both of my co-hosts to just 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 do an organ check. Now that we're done, make sure nothing <laughs> went sideways. So a, that once, we can all... a once over. I'm feeling yeah, yeah. good right now. So hopefully give yourself a once that. over, so so we can all be back at full strength next week. <laughs> well, thanks for being back, Alex. Despite your trials over the past week, appreciate it. I'm not a hero. Thank you. <laughs> and thanks for being with me today, Bill. See you again next week, guys. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, and our contributing reporters this week, Jeff Overly, Jimmy Hoover, Shumei Dong, and all of the reporters on our team that did election coverage. We've pulled from many of them for today's show. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a review. Five stars and written comments help other people find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about today, head to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.